cliffcentral.com. Okay, well, this man is no stranger to us. His name is L.J. Fenter. He is a, an amazing author. He's written a ton of books. Um, many of these books we've already discussed in a previous interview, and therefore I'm not going to delay and, and give a long introduction. But L., you really are legendary, and uh, the stuff that you've written about already, uh, your most recent book we we talked about was uh, Taka Taka Bom Bom, which I think everybody's still it's fresh in their memory. If they're not reading it, then that is a great book for Christmas. But it's good to see you again. How are you? I'm very well. Well, not really, but you're getting. I'm getting old. I'm 85 years old. So what can I say? Well, um, that is part of the story, really, because what you're going to tell us today, I mean, there's some real revelations here, and that's the reason I wanted to talk to you before the end of the year, because you've also been through a bit of a tough personal journey. I do remember you saying to us that you 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 had uh, bone cancer, and um, I want to know kind of what the situation, the status quo there is. Uh, you haven't stopped, obviously, and that was part of the reason that I found you so fascinating the last time and continue to find you fascinating. But uh, do we have any updates on the health front? Okay, this is a score. I have never talked about what I'm going to be talk about today. I've written it in Taka Taka Bom Bom, but that's the international edition. I couldn't write it. I couldn't have it published in South Africa. They would have bumped me. But I am uh, terminal cancer. I am told that I've got another five years, which is quite good. Um, and the reason why I'm talking to you uh, is I'm proud of what I did. And I cracked four major cases internationally. And sure. uh, from what I gather, the average intelligence, intelligent man in the field manages one big job in his life. So uh, there I stand. And when you talk about this stuff, we're not talking about Mickey Mouse uh, operations that there was once, uh, you know, some kind of situation somewhere in the deep Congo that nobody knows about. You've written about so many things in your in your time, but this is this is a collection of probably four very very big stories. And just to reiterate, these are things that you haven't put pen to paper on before now. And part of the reason you've decided to do this is because. I suppose you look at it and go, well, you've got nothing to lose, and, and you're I've proud of these. You're quite right. And I think our generation should know, the next generation should know, uh, some of the problems we're facing. For example, I'm going to be talking to you about Osama bin Laden. Uh, no, Almost nobody knows that he was resident in South Africa for a while, and his deputy was living in Cape Town for so long he could have got a, a resident permit. And I'm, if, I'm an Al-Zwahiri. If I could infiltrate Al-Qaeda, me, uh, and I'm white, but I did it to a, a Muslim guy in Cape Town who was assassinated by them thereafter, and I've had to be very careful because I handed this, I got an enormous number of files, which I, which the both the British and the Americans um, were quite grateful for. It resulted in Osama bin Laden having to leave South Africa. He, he would come intermittently. He wasn't as a permanent resident in Cape Town as as Al-Zawahiri was. Uh, mm. But it's because of his his role with Al-Qaeda, uh, South Africa became the prime overseas base for that revolutionary movement. And why? I deal with this uh, in, in uh, several of my books because South Africa is the ideal base. Uh, it's got excellent communication with the outside world. You can get on a plane and go anywhere. Uh, it's got very bad borders. You can bring in an army uh, across mm -hmm. the border in the middle of the night. Nobody would know. It's got good banking. It's got good communications. And uh, 
so this is an obvious choice and as it was it says so now the files that i am talking about these detail movement uh, in cape town pe johannesburg all the local people involved their names uh, the cars they were driving their businesses uh, and uh, you know there will obviously be some comeback on this because once these details became known an unusual number of South African uh, members of the Muslim community would travel overseas and find that they're not allowed into the country and they couldn't understand why. Uh, but that is the broader picture of the whole thing. Um, All right, so let's the, just let's start at the beginning because, I mean, there's a lot here and I, I'm going to have to be uh, really looking after <laughs> the whole story because there's, there's a temptation to get stuck straight into this. But let's go to the beginning with the the KGB spy who was after you for some time. And I think this could be a, a good place to start. And then we'll bring it back to Al-Qaeda in a moment. But let's start with the KGB. Okay, well, he wasn't after me. He was a friend. Uh, his name was Francois Daquin. And uh, it was during the Rhodesian War. Uh, and I got to know him quite well because uh, um, my wife uh, and I uh, socialized with him. And we had a very good friend called Karen. I'm not going to mention any surnames in this case, uh, but we introduced sure. Karen to Francois Darquin, uh, who put himself across as a French uh, photojournalist. And he worked, he was quite good at what he did. Uh, but uh, Karen's story, which I'm going to be writing a book about, uh, is quite dramatic because uh, he, was, he would go on operations uh, and he had infiltrated his way into the Rhodesian government. Um, to the extent that he was one of the first guys in the, the final stages at some of the more dramatic events like this, uh, the bringing down uh, of uh, a Rhodesian Air Force um, plane by SAM missiles. So this this guy that you knew in, in then Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, was involved at a very high level in some big international yeah. events. He, so, so he, made, he, he made friends with a, uh, a young aristocrat um, the son of the Marcus of Salisbury who ended up fighting in the RLI and uh, they became close friends to the extent that uh, 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 Richard took him with him to London and he stayed in, the, in the, uh, the beautiful family home ended up meeting other dignitaries, went into parliament uh, and we never knew that uh, he was working for KGB, this came out afterwards but anyway the thing is that he ended up meeting Karen, and they were a, they were quite an, a lovely item for two years. He's good good looking man, and Karen is stunningly beautiful. She was Miss Outspan, Miss South Africa, uh, uh, not Miss South Africa, but but in that at that level, and they right. they ended up uh, living uh, together in Salisbury, the whole batch of them. And this is uh, you know the, the the foreign press corps was pretty tight group, so everybody knew everybody else. Um, now. I uh, had no idea that he was actually a Russian. We only found that out later. So in a nutshell, what happened is that he had been what, uh, wondering about, he, he knew Ian Smith, uh, he, he knew P.K. von der Bale. Uh, he was a pretty powerful operator. This was one well-trained man, fluent in French. He had a whole string of uh, uh, Elias uh, aliases that um, indicated that his family was in a, had a bookshop in Paris and they had a country home and that sort of thing. And of course, Karen was so deeply in love with the man that uh, 
what 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 did she do? But there were a lot of odd things that went on. Uh, before I come Absolutely. to the Dunormont, uh, there were a lot of odd things. Uh, she realized that there's something funny going on because she was always broke, but then suddenly he'd get a lot of money. And then he would detach her himself and go to the back room and speak on the phone, but it was in a foreign language, which she didn't know. Uh, Karen is no is a, is a bit of a traveler herself, so she's, she's no fool. But she was too much mm. in love with him. She adored him, and he could do no wrong. So they, you know, things like happened, like they go through to... Um, to the eastern uh, due to the war uh, and make a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, arrangements for a, a week away and then suddenly out of the blue he'd be called away which is something when you've got to get uh, uh, petrol coupons and things like that you just don't do but he did because he they had to rush back to, to Salisbury and he rushed into another country he came to Johannesburg a lot uh, which oh. in respect she realized and uh, just to to conclude, before I go into how we how we cracked him, um, once we'd blown his cover, and I'm going to come back to that, he yes. disappeared off the face of the earth. He's never been seen again. Karen has searched every single reference work in France for 40 years looking for the name Francois Darkin. She's found three Darkins. Uh, and, you know, she's a lovely person. She's you cannot be hurt like that. And it came out by accident because a couple of years ago, she uh, we got talking on email or something, and she said, "What? have you ever heard anything about uh, Francois Darkin? And I said, yes, he's a KGB spy, didn't you know? And I never told her. Anyhow, we'll take it a step further. So I, the, I operated out of Johannesburg at that stage. I was married, I was living in Randburg, and um, my wife... Uh, invited uh, Francois to come and have lunch with us or something. But in the meantime, I'd been working in South Lebanon uh, with an Israeli uh, colonel, Yoram Hamas Rahi, quite a man in his own right, quite a hero of the taking of Jerusalem in the first part of the liberation uh, war. Yes. Yoram and I became very good friends. Yoram allowed me to go and uh, uh, be attached to the South Lebanese army uh, in uh, combat with what is today's Hezbollah. In those days, it was Pazdaran. And anybody that knows their oaths will realize what the word Pazdaran is. Anyway, uh, I would go to South Lebanon through Israel, across the border. It's a sealed border. You can't just go across. But Yoram would take me across. And then one stage, I went to Israel with my wife. Uh, and I'm not, she's, she's no longer with me, but I'm still very close to her. And um, he, he took us into South Lebanon, me and, me and her. Uh, and it was quite something. I've got a nice photograph of the book uh, in Takitaka of her and me with Yoram in South Lebanon. Anyhow, lo and behold, Yoram in South Africa, I'm back from the war, and Yoram bangs on the door. Hello. He comes and he says, uh, I've had an idea he was coming, so I said, come in. Are you staying? He says, yes, I'm coming, I'm coming to stay with you. He's going to stay with me for or us for about a week or two. And, and then the, um, uh, I don't know how the subject of Francois Darkin came up again, but uh, I mentioned him, and I think we must have invited him to come yeah. and meet Yoram. And he came that afternoon, and him and Yoram got talking uh, big time. But Yoram was one of those 
uh, remarkable Israeli characters could speak about eight languages. He's fluent in French. He lived in France. He knew the culture backwards, but he never indicated this to to um, Francois. Okay. And I left him to be. And then I came back into the room, and they were still talking. And then suddenly Yoram got up, and he walked across to Francois, who was sitting on the opposite side. And he says, um, "You." Are a fucking KGB spy, aren't you? Wow. And Francois, he was totally taken by surprise. He's back, you know, he's still sitting, didn't get up. He said, What do you mean? He says, I know where you've been, I know your background, I know you've mentioned all these places that I know are very left, very heavily left, that are linked to the Communist Party. Um, obviously, your contacts went deep and you've let yourself down. He says, You're a spy, aren't you? And wow. uh, I didn't say a word. He got up, grabbed his, grabbed his jacket, and left. Now, that should have been that, but it wasn't. Because I was working for Republican Press at the time, and that was Scope. And I had an office in town. And in those days, I used to carry. Uh, I had a 45 ACP. I belonged to a gun club. I was, I'm still a pretty good shot. And uh, yes. that's, that's the 45 uh, ACP caliber. And I went to the office, but I didn't take my gun with me. But I had the holster there. And suddenly, at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, mm -hmm. I just tried to go home, who's at the door, but Francois duck in. And he, I said, in, in the sort of language that you use under those circumstances, what the, do you want? What did you just? Yeah. And he stood there, and I got up, because I could sense trouble. But I did turn my body sideways, so that he couldn't see whether my holster was carrying or not. And he's trying, I could see he's looking, trying to look past to see if I had a gun. So he obviously was coming there with, with intent. Sure. And at that point, I told him to get, you know, uh, the language wow. I used. So do, you, do you think that at that point, this Francois, who was a KGB agent, he was, he was going to kill you? Well, why wouldn't he come to the office? And he knew that I was a pretty good shot that I, I shot, that I, that I was a gun club and, uh, I, you know, you, that's a good question because I've asked myself that one. Uh, mm. He probably, he wouldn't have come there empty-handed. There's no question about it. And he did warn me before he left. He says, you're not over with this business. I'm still going to get you. Anyway, uh, wow. we, since that point, at that point, he, he, he disappeared. And as one of my intelligence pals said, well, he's probably, he, he lost a damn good job. So he's probably been directing traffic in Siberia somewhere for the last 40 years. <laughs> And, uh, so, uh, just um, just to explain, explain to us quickly um, the Israeli uh, who you'd become quite friendly with, who picked up that this guy was a KGB no, spy. I think I think I think there's more to it. I think Yoram, this man made telephone calls in Salisbury, uh, Francois Darkin, and uh, in those days there were no cell phones, and the religions were stupid. And uh, with his French connections, I'm pretty sure the Israelis might have been interested in, in him as well. Uh, and they would so have, was, they played, they played. It wasn't by chance then that they all met. I don't think so myself, but I can't prove it. Uh, you know, they, we, they all ended up in the same room at the same time. And the, and the man's cover was blown. Now, this is a very expensive loss for, for the Russians because he didn't, he had got into the, the, the hierarchy in Britain. He could have gone far, uh, and uh, he never did. That's it. 
Um, <clears throat> but the Russians, did they leave you alone after that, or were they still intimately interested in all the things that you were doing? Because obviously, you... I've never been to Russia, and I'm very wary of Russians. And uh, I've been covering a lot of wars, um, as you know. And I, w I went into uh, uh, the Central African Republic um, 18 months ago um, with uh, the woman that I'm with at the moment, Lynn. Uh, and by the way, we are both then 84 years old. We went to cover the war. Uh, don't ask me why. She came. She liked it. She loved it. And, uh, but we're the first pair of octogenarians to cover a war together. And uh, while I was there, while I was there, Wagner Group actually gave me a lot of a lot of hassle. Uh, I had a meeting with the force commander, and on the morning of the meeting, I went through. This is in Bangui, in Central African Republic. I went to the. I was told to be there at ten o'clock, and there's a colonel waiting for me. And there was also a, a Russian major. And the colonel said to the major, he said, Major, what do you want? He said, I'm here for the interview that this event is going to have with, with the force commander. He says, no, you're not. He says, you've got nothing to do with this. I'd leave you to, like you to leave the premises. And then when I left Bangui with Lynn uh, uh, about a week later, the Russians by then were controlling all movement in and out of Bangui, Central African Republic. They basically colonized the country. And I'm surprised the, the media never picked that up. They've taken over the government. They, all my... All our baggage was pushed through. I arrived back uh, at my destination. My bags never came. And in the checking afterwards, there was no reference whatever that I had ever checked in a bag at Bangui. So they know all about me. And uh, ah, well, they got to better. They better hurry up because you know. Uh, I mean, I'm tempted. I'm tempted at this point to say that um, were you not an asset to? Uh, anyone at any given time um it seems to me obviously you were reporting on on conflict you were reporting on some some high level intelligence stuff um that would be very useful to to foreign intelligence services in some way shape or form if not the military themselves yeah but you know um uh, uh, i work in a peculiar way and i've always done so i'm a one-man show i don't have a cameraman i go in yeah. Wherever it is, Somalia, Central Central America, what uh, with the Arab forces, mm. Israel, Israel. But I go in, get the job done, and I get out. I don't hang around. Uh, I'm mm. not a I'm not a social character with the rest of the half pissed bunch of hacks that you find in at the fringes of every war. Uh, I, I I do my job. I get out. I go home. And okay, obviously, so I don't have I don't hang around. All right, so, so tell me about the relationship then that you've had over the years with the CIA because they've had to look after you even though you didn't know about it. And when you're dealing with a KGB, invariably you will come to the attention of the CIA. And even if you want well, no, actually, the fact living in America, I'd come to the attention of the FBI, but they, I'm, their files on me, all the intelligence files on me must be about three foot six by now. But anyway, um, the CIA, I'd been working, uh, we're now going to 1985, uh, when the Russians had invaded Afghanistan. And I'd been covering a number of wars and writing for uh, a lot of magazines, including Jane's. Um, I've been, uh, I'd worked for BBC for a while, but they fired me. Uh, and all the South African magazines and the newspapers and so on. So uh, by then I was fairly well known and I'd yes. also been very successful. So I had a beautiful home in the Cape 
I was married, I had two children, and uh, I had met an American uh, guy that had done some film work, and um, he was very interested with me, and we became good friends. Anyway, I got an invitation to come to Washington, D.C. They paid the, they paid the, car, the ticket. And um, they, uh, I met uh, two guys, and from there on, it was always two guys. You never meet CIA alone, but I didn't know it was CIA. Uh, mm. They asked whether I was interested in doing a job for which I'd be paid. And uh, I was, first of all, had to be put through a little ceremony of uh, meeting a man at the, one of the hotels, El Golquin in New York, who had met me, and just to see what I was like. Uh, what, how, what my bearing was was I was I wearing was I wearing socks? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm joking, but the point is that uh, he just formally greeted me and he said, "Okay, you can get yourself to Washington tomorrow morning. You'll be met." And uh, there was nothing about CIA, nothing at all. And uh, I then went to Washington and I met these two guys and um, we had a long talk. And they said to me that. Um, we got down to the basics. We, they needed a film made on the fifth anniversary of the invasion of Afghanistan by the Russians. This was sort of a. Yeah. And, um, they said, "Would you be interested?" And that's uh, uh, a very stupid question. Of course, I'm interested. So they uh, we went into a few more details, and then said, um, "You've got to do it in a hurry because it's already. I think it was February or no March or some April, and we only had until about." Um, September, we had to be in and out, and, and there's a lot of planning involved, nothing like this. And then they said to me, um, what sort of money are you going to charge? I said, well, okay, what a, what a thing to throw at a guy. Uh, yeah. I said, I reckon about a quarter million of the green things. So they said, no, that's fine. Actually, I'm very sorry I didn't say half a million, because I could have got away with it. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, having said that, I had to hire a team, and, and I had to do the whole thing from scratch. Uh, I had to go back. I hired all, almost all South Africans, uh, people uh, that are known uh, in South Africa, Chris Everson uh, and uh, several others, uh, Paul Moorcroft. And I, they, they didn't know that I was uh, working for the CIA. But obviously, when you're very close to a team like that, about five or six men, um, yes. You know, they, somebody's going to be asking, you know, who are you doing this for? You know, where are you going to sell it? So I, I said, it's for the Saudis. The Saudis feel that the Muslims in Afghanistan are being persecuted. And of course, that made good sense. And it's only much later that I brought out the fact that um, uh, I'd done this work for the CIA. Now, right. when you join the CIA, it's not a simple matter of uh, just picking up a uh, contract and going. There's a lot of formality involved, including uh, uh, lie detector tests and. Mm. Uh, and um, non-disclosure and this is something i dealt with in the book well of course i signed non-disclosure but i'm 85 years old and i'm dying so what the hell um and then i uh, had to leave and go back now i one of the conditions that i made uh, to langley which is another word for cia or the company right was that i travel first class well of course this this caught them short first class are you crazy i said yes first class now I said, you you by now know You've looked into me pretty damn well in South Africa. You know how I live. You know what my car is. You know where my house is. You know what my bank balance is. You wouldn't be yeah. hiring me if you hadn't done that complete background check. 
And of course, they said, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they went into hyper in the corner, they came back, all right, first class, uh, but only for this job. So I said, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, work to use your imagination. Do this one good, you might get another one. That sort of thing. Anyway, I then went back. Now, it was a peculiar arrangement from, from word go. I had to buy food to take into Afghanistan, and you couldn't just take any food. So I, I uh, NASA had a certain kind of food produced for the uh, astronauts. And I think it's called freeze dried, but there's only one company at the time producing it. So I bought 40 boxes of this and wow. had it shipped to uh, Heathrow to await my arrival. And uh, when we got from South Africa, everything was put together. We got on the plane. We, half the plane must have been our stuff. Um, I also had a, a key box. You remember the old key box? It's full of medical equipment. I had everything. I also want to point out, like nobody that I can think of ever flies first class to Afghanistan. So you, you know, that's that's quite a big deal. Yeah. Well, I did not when I'm with my crew. I'd have to sit. I had to fly the same same as my crew. Uh, right. So anyway, the thing is that um, we uh, we we got through uh, to Heathrow, but here I had this box of medical stuff, and I thought to myself, you know, I've got morphine, I've got all sorts of drugs in there that are needed for battle. So I, I, before taking Gage to a customer, I went to one of the customer's offices and I said to him, I said, listen, we're going to Afghanistan. I've got a team here. I have a big box of medical equipment. I've got morphine. He says, I'm glad you told us because we certainly would have gone through your box. And uh, I gave it to him and he uh, he didn't look any further. There's a lot of other drugs in there as well that he could have taken. But anyway, there we were. We went to Afghanistan. Uh, and the idea was that I send the team in. And at the end of the day, Three teams went in. We made a film and um, made a single documentary, one-hour documentary. And uh, I got paid. I got paid in third, 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 and that was that. And um, I never did get another contract. Or even if I did, I wouldn't tell you. But never mind. Leave it at that. Well, I mean, that's, this is fascinating to people because you know to even be involved with with people or with a group like the CIA. Uh, you know, to to take things like you don't you don't use the same entrances at airports. You don't go through the same processes that ordinary folks do, right? It must have been very exciting and sexy. I mean, it's very James Bond. No, 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 it's not James Bond. I'm a simple country boy from Kronstadt, so let's not get carried away. But anyway, I have never uh, gone through special entrances or otherwise. I just. Keep very low key. I don't. I don't draw attention to myself. Uh, people that have worked with me know that. Uh, I'm not an easy guy to get on with. Well, uh, it's still you. You will deny that it's uh, it's James Bondy, but uh, don't. Um, there are not a lot of people who have to explain that they've got morphine and they're going to Afghanistan. You know, Th these are not things that happen to ordinary folk from Kronstadt. <laughs> no, that's true. So, that's Al, true. Um, did you ever have the feeling that? there were people who were also watching over you because while you're just a humble reporter, you just, yeah. So how does that work? And how long did it take you to figure out, hang on, uh, these things that are happening to me, is not by chance. It's not by luck. Uh, there are people who I keep seeing there are things I keep noticing. I mean, you're an observant guy. How did that dawn on you? And what exactly did it mean? Well, I've been doing this sort of thing since, 19, since the 1980s as, what do we now? It's almost it's forty, more than forty years. So um, I, I'm, I'm a bit of an isolationist. I read a hell of a lot, and uh, so I'm not a social. I'm not a 
pub, I don't go to the pub very often. Um, it passes me by. I, I, I'm not, what can I say? It's part of my life and it's the way it is and uh, I've done good with it. Now, the one, probably the biggest thing that I ever cracked, and there, there it did come home because at the end of the day I was poisoned uh, and I survived. And that is, I had been working, I was working for Jane's, Jane's Defense Weekly at the time, Jane's Intelligence Review, uh, doing a lot of stuff. And I was living in America, and this was pre uh, the Twin Towers disaster, and I had all sorts of access to uh, nuclear, chemical, biological, and, and I was right, doing quite a lot of work for Jane's on those subjects, including nuclear. And I ended up... Uh, uh, doing a very close study of South Africa's nuclear weapons program, which was quite remarkable. Uh, people then realize how good we are as a nation. We built six atom bombs, which That's were right. eventually dismantled uh, under the auspices of the International Sorry, Al, during your time um, investigating this story and being involved in it, do you ever go out to Advina and see where they put the bomb together, to Pelindaba, see those no, sites? I, I, how I, much I, I went how to Pelindaba. Sorry, uh, I went to Pelindaba, uh, but I had to, went to see somebody there whose name I won't mention because uh, it became a very embarrassing situation. Um, but I had quite a lot of material, and I was helped uh, by David Albright, who is a very prominent figure in the United States. He deals with uh, the um, an organization called ISIS. It's not the ISIS that we're talking about. It's in Washington, and they track people that are illegally making or involved with nuclear uh, weapons, uh, all aspects of that. David Albright became a very good, he is a good, very really good friend. And David Albright helped me write a book uh, on uh, nuclear proliferation. And in the process, I went, to, I went, to, went back to South Africa and I went and made an appointment with uh, the head of uh, the Pelindaba uh, crowd. He, he saw me, I was going to go for 10 minutes, I ended up staying an hour. And all sorts of things were disclosed, which he hadn't intended disclosing, including the fact that um, they had built these bombs and that the Iranians, as it was after Mandela took over, had sent people to him to get him to give them a, the blueprints of the atom bomb. Um, okay, Al, what we know is that South Africa's atomic program, and particularly its atomic weapon program, uh, in the 1980s to 90s, was completely dismantled by the time 1994 rolled around. That's quite right. right? Yes. And that... It's actually that part in the 1970s. Yes, and part of, of, of what was dismantled there was because of the old National Party's fear that the ANC would get hold of this dangerous technology. You know, it was our biggest state secret. Um, but you're telling me that Iran... And South Africa had relations to start that program up again post '94. No, it's, uh, it had been dismantled, and that was in the configuration of the new ANC government. Yeah, but building the bomb is an extremely complicated business. It needs an, in, an enormous industrial base, uh, and once it's, this whole system is dismantled, uh, and the uh, the nuclear physicists have been paid off and so on it would have been al almost impossible to bring it in, to bring it in but what what the iranians wanted they were busy trying to get 
their own nuclear weapons program going. And this mm. is a book that I did under the auspices of David Albright, and it's called Iran's Nuclear Option, and it was published in 2005. To the alarm of an enormous number of very liberal academics in America who said, how dare you suggest that our dear Iranian brothers are trying to build such an evil thing like an atom bomb. Well, I took, I took a lot of flack from that. But curiously, uh, working with, within, uh, within the heart of this operation within the, in the government, once Iran declared that it is it has, has actually able to build the bomb and did so 18 months ago. Of course, quite a lot of people coming back to me and said, good for you. You stuck to your guns. Now, I, at the time, going back to me meeting, going to Perandala and hearing that the Iranians uh, had sent a delegation to Perandala at which Pit Buerta was was a party and he had confirmed that. Uh, to Amongo Socket, I think his name is, on the uh, Mail and Weekly. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I had this information. I had a lot of other information as well, how South African nuclear physicists were going to Iran. I, 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 I then went to work and I infiltrated a lot of things and I found out that there was an entire South African involvement in the Iranian nuclear program. Well, uh, this, this caused um, a, a lot of hassles in my mind at the time, because it was not public. So I came back to London and I spoke to the editor of uh, Jane's Defense Weekly, as an American at the time, good man. And I said, you know, I've got this hell of a problem. I, 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 I've got to live with my conscience. Do I, get, do I go public with this or not? He says, well, Al, he says, you have to live with yourself. He said, yes, you know, you know what you told me. This, this is a serious matter. I then I then published Iran's Nuclear Options. It was published by Casemate, and it's still in print. And uh, that caused tremendous problems because um, I then took it even further and had to go to South Africa from time to time. And, uh, and it was during one of those visits that somebody poisoned me. And it was after that that I went into a condition of uh, protective surveillance where uh, the FBI and the Canadian intelligence people looked after me. And sure. it wasn't the South Africans that came after me in North America. Uh, it was the Iranians. I gather. They don't talk about it. No, of course now, not. When I, when I met the uh, guy that had headed the team, I was living in a place called uh, Tucson Marine in northern Canada. Uh, and um, this is where the protective surveillance started. And, I, and he said, he said, I know you better than you know yourself. But I said, well, to have gone into all this, the threat factor must have been pretty severe. He says, yes, it was. I said, well, tell me. And he smiled and he said, well, some other time maybe. So uh, sure. I know that uh, that is not the only time I've been placed under protective surveillance. And um, I won't go into that because I'm living in England now. South Africans poisoned me, and it, uh, we had to get a team. I was living, I was in Pretoria. I'd been taken on a safari by friends, mm -hmm. and I know who did it. And I, as 12 guys, we all went on a very happy, jolly party, and I came back and my head blew up. 
and they had a rush me to a hospital in Pretoria. It's all on record. And they pulled an MRI team out of their beds in the middle of the night and uh, uh, to see what was wrong. I had to pay for Do you know what? Do you know what kind of poison it was? No, but I, I took me four months to. It took me four months to, um, to get over it because it affected my blood pressure, affected my eyesight, and, and in the meantime, I did have a haircut, and I kept the clippings. Now I've got an intelligence friend in America, uh, who is, is, is uh, Floyd Holcomb. He lives in uh, Oregon. Floyd and I are very good friends. And Floyd is one of those remarkable intelligence guys that speaks three different languages and so on. And I gave him my hair. And the other day I said to Floyd, I said, by the way, you still have uh, you still have that hair that, that uh, I might be wanting to have it actually tested now. He says, yes, of course, it's on your file. I said, what do you mean it's on my file? I'm your friend. You're keeping your file on me? He said, Al, don't be stupid. Of course I am. So well, there we are. That's the way this, the world works in, those, in this game. So Al, let's just go back to Al-Qaeda because there's a lot going on in the world at the moment that is particularly pertinent to this story. So... You're saying that Osama bin Laden and his two IC, Ayman al-Zwahiri, were in South Africa together for it's some not, time. And that... not, yeah, it's not only, it's not only them. Uh, his entire yes. family came uh, to visit him. His son, Saad, S-A-F-O-S-A-E, uh, bin Laden, came as well. And I've got uh, all the comments that he made about um, South Africa being such a, a very, very, a safe place in which to work, and of course, the part of the agreement was that while Al Qaeda was given this sanctuary, uh, there would be no attacks. Now, the question that I have here, and it's, and it's pertinent, if I could infiltrate Al Qaeda, there are many people within government that would be a, that would be complicit, that would know exactly what was going on at the time with Al Qaeda. The fact that are you, saying, are, are you saying South African government? South African government, but this is, you've never heard this mentioned before. But there's no. a lot of people that know about it within government. It's the secret, but they've never they've never said a word. And and this is not something. El uh, Zawahiri, I've listed all the mosques that he attended. I met, I listed all the meetings, the farms they bought in the Eastern Cape to train guerrillas, yet mujahideen. There were five to start with, and this is on record as well. It's a complaint made to the government by the Israelis and also raised in the United Nations. Um, and, and, and by the, by the way, uh, this is all, in, in, you, you can actually Google some of it. You won't get all of it, obviously, but uh, it's on record. Uh, it's there. And, and the books that I've written, um, and, and I should mention, there's one very, very important one that's out two years uh, called a Nuclear Terror, published by Pen and Sword in Britain. There's a lot of this is in there, uh, but not the details that you and I are talking about now, because obviously I haven't been able to. It would be dangerous then to talk about it. But Al, is it, isn't it still dangerous today to talk about it? We know what's going on in, in you know, Gaza right at the moment. We know what the relations are like between South Africa's government and the Israelis at the moment. We also know that Al-Qaeda has in some ways morphed into ISIS. ISIS and Al-Qaeda are almost interchangeable. We've got Al-Shabaab on the east coast of Africa. They're within a Bucky's, you know, a, a, a day-long Bucky's drive from us in northern Mozambique. And they're in Mozambique. Yeah, and, and Boko Haram in, in the west of Africa, a little bit further away. But these people are within 
a day's travel from Pretoria. That's right. I mean, that's, that's, well, this is frightening stuff. So uh, th this has an impact on our current situation in the world today. What, what do you think, uh, what role might this have played, especially if you say people in government might have known? And I know this is speculative, but people in government, clearly there were some people who knew about Al-Qaeda uh, and its links to South Africa. Um, what sort of a role might that have played in, in the situation we find ourselves in now? Well, um, the um, issue with uh, around Palapala is linked. Palapala with, with Cyril and the money. Yeah. So I'm not going to mention anything about that now. We'll do that on the next talk because that is such a big story. That is probably the biggest story which I have complete. Uh, and that is about as much as uh, enough to get wow. me coming after me <laughs> before I talk to you again. Well, this is where people say, this is where people say, you know, he's dropping bombs. <laughs> You're quite literally uh, Look, telling us and, and teasing us about stuff that I certainly hope you get to write all of this and they don't take you out before then or, you know. Well, it's short now and this is why I'm glad we're doing this because um, it's important. This has to come out. The South African government is playing a, an extremely dangerous game. We've seen what happened with that ship that arrived uh, in Simonstown uh, right. and, and everybody has laughed it off. Uh, well, it, it, it took days. The entire area was cordoned off. There was guards. There was movement of trucks. Uh, and nobody has realized that uh, it was actually weapons going to Russia. And, and probably, in my, uh, to my estimate, one of the sources I have, our lovely 155 millimeter howitzer. Uh, nobody's mentioned that, uh, and then and and I'll, and I'll add one point that is terribly important: that the Americans do not wish to rock the boat. Uh, mm -hmm. For the reason that South Africa at the moment is stable, sort of stable up to a point. It's still yeah. got an enormous industrial base. It supplies Africa all the way up to the equator. Uh, some of these things that I've been talking about could force the government or it could result in a revolution or even a coup d'etat within the army. The last thing they need is that. You've got, because it reset across one of the most strategic sea lanes of the world that handles a fair proportion of the world's oil. Do not change the status quo is the word in Washington. That is why they're tolerating all this rubbish. It's the most corrupt government imaginable. And nobody says the word. Al, uh, there's there's also, and, and I think it, it's worth talking about Wagner Group, who you've already mentioned with respect to your adventures in Africa. But the Wagner Group, what's happened to them since their leader was was taken out by Vladimir Putin? Or am I simplifying even that? No. And and what is this? What is the status of Russia in Africa since the Ukraine war has broken out? Has it improved? Has it got a whole lot worse? Uh, are they being uh, requisitioned properly in Africa because there are obviously priorities back home. What's going on yeah. with the Wagner Group? That's it. Uh, they are an extremely thorough, brutal organization. And I've, I've seen what they did in Mali. They, I went to Mali uh, two and a half years ago, uh, mm. already in my 80s, mind you. And um, they were good. But everything changed with Ukraine. Uh, as of today, the countries where... Um, 
Wagner Group are busy. Central uh, African Republic, um, they're going to go into Niger, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, and several others. Uh, all had competent Wagner groups, but Russia needs efficient fighting men. So all the people that could do any good solid fighting have been sent back to the, the Ukraine front. And you left in Africa with crooks and bottle washers uh, wearing the, uh, the badge of Wagner Group. And that's about it. And secondly, uh, to fight guerrilla wars in Africa, as they do in all these countries I've just mentioned, you need air power. Uh, the French were very efficient with their helicopter gunships and transport, the Pumas. And uh, that turned. There's no getting away from it from the Portuguese and the Rhodesian helicopter gunships. Uh, air, air power, something that the guerrillas did not have, it wins wars. Now, most of those uh, uh, flight equipment, the helicopters and so on, have been sent back to Europe because they need uh, they need that equipment for their own war. And they now, Russia is now sending out emissaries to the countries that have bought their, uh, MI, their, their hips and their hinds, that's the MI-17 and the MI-24, to find out if they've any, got any spares. They want to buy back spares for their own equipment. They don't have any. So, uh, wow. yes, as you say, it's a, a lot of things are changing. And the war in Mali, they pulled out of, um, the UN pulled out of there uh, two days ago. The guerrillas have got the field day. They get to, um, they, the, the, the government in Bamako is under siege. All the roads in and out of Bamako are, are you can't travel, you're going to be ambushed. Uh, Timbuktu uh, is completely under siege. And then Gao is the biggest military base in that entire region. Uh, they they do, but you know, until two days ago, the UN would provide escorts, but there's no more UN in, in that country. And the same applies to Niger. Niger, the, the, the guerrillas, the Mujahideen are having a field day. Uh, the French have left, and, uh, it's, and, and the wars are going away. Al, what would you say, again, putting on your journalist hat, what do you say the balance of power is looking like, not only here in Africa, but as we go into the, into the year 2024? Uh, you know, most people immediately default to the, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and now to Israel and Hamas and Gaza. But with your understanding and your, your many years of, of, of reporting on this stuff, what is your take on how the world is shaping up as we move into another year? Well, I said to Lynn the other day, we're in our 85th year, I said, we're not going to see the outcome of this mess, but there's only one way it can go, uh, and that's down. Uh, there's no question about it. The whole system is Ukraine, uh, little Ukraine, yeah. with European and American help is, is, is managing. Uh, it can't go on forever on its own. It needs more support, and I, I, I suspect it'll get it. I don't think the West is going to let, going to drop Ukraine because they don't need a rampant Russia. Uh, if they overrun Ukraine, uh, there's a lot of old former Soviet states that will be next on their line on the list of Putin. But I'm just hoping that they, they assassinate that bastard because he's a, he's evil. Everybody that says a word says a word against him is eliminated. His top editor of his favorite magazine was found dead in a bed two days ago. She had said something about, listen, we can't go on like this, to friends at a party. That wow. is what this is the sort of thing that are, things that are going on. Um, as for South Africa, 
hell. It's my home. Uh, as I said, I'm a country boy. Because uh, and uh, I I would like to think better. But um, I'm at the end of the tether. I uh, I have family there, and I love the country. I despise the corruption. I I don't want to say more uh, about the negative factors because it's in front of you, Gareth, when you drive home. You can't yeah. have a country. You can't have a country where they talk about forty percent unemployment. It's closer to sixty, and you're talking about sixty million people. So yeah. uh, my prediction you will have something of a revolution. I don't think you'll have a total revolution, but I think you'll have something of a revolution in the not distant future. And what sort of, what what I shape will that take? Because... I can't, can't predict. <clears throat> I just... No, I'm, but I, I, you, mentioned our, you mentioned our army a little while ago. South Africa's military is totally degraded. Well, if, 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 if Zimbabwe had to launch an invasion, no. <laughs> they'd be in Pretoria in two days. Right. But that's overstating. That's overstating it because we're not that bad. Our army is pretty bloody bad. Our air force is almost non-existent. But there's still a lot of you and me and other people like that that uh, are going to put their put their money where their mouth is and uh, stand up for what they own, for what oh. they desire, what they want their children to inherit. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a very good scene. It is always fascinating to talk to you, and I appreciate your time today. I don't know if we even managed to scratch the surface, but I feel like you've still got a lot to write. Um, and I hope that you have those five years they've given you so that you can uh, keep letting us, letting, letting sunlight in on, on all of the skullduggery and, the, and the, the dirty deeds done and the amazing adventures that you've been on. Well, one of the things that I want to mention at the close of this thing is that I'm surprised that the media has not got onto the fact that Central African Republic on, the, on one of the tributaries of the Congo, has been totally yep. recolonized by the Wagner Group. It's the first African state to be colonized again. And nobody says a word. You don't get a journalist near the place. Well, you could also argue, El, that the whole of Africa is being recolonized by China. It's just a soft kind of colonialism. It's a different sort. It's not military. It's not necessarily occupation. But certainly yeah, but we know who our payment. They don't, they don't end up wiping out entire villages and uh, stealing or driving people off their own little mines and, their, and uh, resources and taking everything in shops. Chinese don't do that. I don't like what they're doing either, but they're not like the Russians. The Russians just take everything and if you stand in the way, they kill you. Well, thank you, Al, and strength to you. Happy Christmas and New Year, and we will reconnect with you very soon. You will indeed, I hope. Take care. Look after yourself. Thank you. Thank you. LJ Fenter, everybody.